I want to thank Kate for sharing her story with us today. We'd like to do more of that too, tell about what Christ has done. And thanks to Caleb for videotaping, putting that together as well for us. All right, would you take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. And today we're going to be talking about making sense out of suffering, a theme that we've seen in this letter. We're going to take a closer look at it this morning. I'd like to read for us verses 12 to the end of the chapter. Peter writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let's pray. Father, your word speaks to our needs, and it is challenging. And today we're talking about a subject that's tough for us to understand at times. How can suffering be a good thing that you could use in our life or in the life of the church? And I pray that you would use the scripture this morning, the stories that are shared, to open our eyes to the truth of what you are saying here. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the principles that we find in scripture is that how we look at suffering makes a great deal of difference in how we handle it. How we look at suffering makes a great deal of difference in how we handle it. I think of a young boy, David, who was a second grader. And he got up one morning to go to school and as he was getting on the bus that day, he got bumped and his head kind of hit where the door was and he got a cut on his cheek, had to put a Band-Aid on that. And then when he was out at recess in the morning and playing, he collided with another boy on the playground and bruised his leg. And then to top things off, then at lunchtime, when they had the noon recess, he was out there and on the playground, he slipped and he fell and he broke his wrist. His dad needed to come, pick him up, bring him to the hospital so he get an x-ray and then get a cast put on that. And when his dad was watching his son, he noticed that he was clutching something in his good hand. And he asked him what it was. And David proudly showed him. He said, Dad, it's a quarter. I found it when I fell. He goes, isn't that great? I mean, this must be my lucky day. <laughs> you know, how we look at suffering makes a great deal of difference in how we handle it. Most of us wouldn't be quite so cheerful if a day like that happened to us. In fact, in our culture, we tend to view some suffering as an enemy to be avoided at all costs, even suffering for Jesus. But in other parts of the world, there are Christians who view suffering for Jesus as an honor, as an honor, because they know what it does and they know how it brings them closer to God. 
today we're going to look at that and we're going to see that the difference is one of perspective, that it really does make a great deal of difference in how we look at suffering and how we respond to it. This um, past week, I finished reading a book that's called The Insanity of God by a man named Nick Ripkin. That's not his real name. He's writing under a fictitious name. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Nick Ripkin is the kind of leading expert on what believers are going through in Islamic countries and the persecution that they are suffering. And he himself was a missionary for 15 years in Africa. He and his wife went there. They worked in some of the most difficult countries in the world. They were in Somalia. Uh, they were there at the time of Black Hawk Down, if you remember that story and what took place there and just how awful it was. And they were trying to do humanitarian work and share the gospel and plant a church if they could. And they were really struggling with all of that. And... Uh, you know, the people that they would try to have contact with, some of them didn't want to talk to them or associate with them. Some who did become Christians ended up being arrested, beaten, killed. In fact, later they learned that kind of the warlords in that part of the world uh, had a list that they kept of people who were talking to the American missionary. And they said, don't kill the American missionary. If you do that, he'll be a martyr. But if we kill those that he is talking to, he'll get discouraged and he'll leave. And that's what happened after 15 years. Came back to the States just wrestling with this question, God, how can the church grow in countries where there's so much hostility to the gospel? How can the church grow in nations where there's persecution? Well, he goes back to Kentucky, his home area. He's a a uh, professor at a Christian college. And the opportunity comes for him to be able to travel the world and do some research on that topic. A grant's given, and for two years, he'll travel the world going to countries like the former Soviet Union, going to China, uh, Indonesia, Africa, talking to believers in those countries who have survived persecution. And he's wanting to know what, what happened. How did that happen? I mean, like you think of the Soviet Union where for 70 years the communists were saying, God is dead, God is dead, God is dead. They thought if you drill that into the people, then we'll be done with this kind of nonsense. And instead the people didn't buy it. And what you had was instead when it come to Easter, and you know that, that refrain back and forth where the pastor would say, Christ is risen, and the people respond, he is risen indeed, you know? They would do that on the square in Moscow. They'd do that in Ukraine. And the people would thunder back the response that he is risen. And you go, how is that? Or in China, you look at what happened in 1949 when Mao came to power and the missionaries were forced to leave the country and there were maybe a million Christians or so at that time. Nobody knows exactly how many were there. But the church exploded under communism. And we start hearing these reports of 50 million believers in China. And then today, you know, over 100 million. I mean, there are several house church movements of tens of millions of believers. And you go, how did that happen? The church grew more under communism in China than it did even in that first century with the apostles who were taking the gospel all over the Roman Empire. I mean, it just exploded. And how did that happen? 
Well, this author, Nick Ripkin, travels around. He interviews 600 people. And basically, this book and another book that he has written, The Insanity of Obedience, tell the stories of these believers who lived in those countries. And I want to share some of them with you today. This is kind of one of those times when, you know, God places the right book at the right time into your hands because of the message that I'm going to share this morning from this place in Peter. In the text we're looking at today, Peter gives us God's perspective on suffering as a Christian. And he tells us what our attitude should be when we go through trials. And the first thing he says is, don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised by suffering. You see it in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though some strange thing were happening to you. And that's really how the believers in those countries felt. I mean, persecution was the normal Christian life. Suffering for Jesus was just how it was. And so they learned to stand firm in the midst of that. And if you think of what the scripture says, I mean, like Paul said in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And again, he said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so believers in those countries look at books like 1 Peter, and they take great comfort in this because it is speaking to the world that they are living in. Now, when Peter was writing in that first century to the Gentiles who had become Christians, the whole idea of suffering for your faith may have been new to them. And they may have been troubled by it, wondering why are we suffering for what we believe? I don't understand this. Why is Jesus so offensive? Why is it so offensive to people that we have placed our trust in him? I mean, we may wonder about that at times too. Why, why is it that the name Jesus divides people? Why is it that that name is singled out as the one that's offensive in our world? For the believers who had come out of Judaism, they would have had a better understanding of suffering for their faith. I mean, they knew that. The Jews knew what that was like. God had chosen them as his people out of the whole earth to be a witness for him. It is through the Jewish people that he'll give us the word of God, and it's through the Jews that the Messiah would come. But because of that, they would suffer for their faith. And I don't think you can understand the history of Israel or look at things like anti-Semitism without a spiritual perspective. I just don't think it makes any sense at all apart from an understanding of Scripture that Satan hates the Jews because God used them to bring us the Word of God and the Messiah. And in that same way today, Satan hates Christians. And he wants to stamp out the gospel and he wants to do anything he can to keep us from sharing that good news of salvation with those who don't know Jesus. So don't be surprised if you suffer as a Christian because Satan hates you too. And sometimes people are surprised. Sometimes Christians are surprised when bad things happen to them in this land. And I think the reason for that is that there are two false promises that are sometimes made or people sort of pick up on these things and they aren't true. And those promises are, one, if you come to Christ, all your problems will be solved. 
You know, as though you come to Christ, you'll be forgiven and you'll live happily ever after and you'll never have any more struggles. I mean, that's just not true. Come to Christ and your sins are forgiven. They are covered by the blood of Christ. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to go through trials or suffering or sorrow in this life. That, that's all part of this present fallen world. And so we need to be prepared for that. And the other lie that's out there is, you know, come to Christ and you'll be healthy and prosperous. You know, that's the lie of the health and wealth gospel that wants to make it sound like as a Christian, you know, God's going to bless you. You'll be rich. You know, you won't have any problems if you're sick. You just name it, claim it, and you'll be well. And that's not what the scripture says. In fact, if you choose to follow Christ and to live for him, some of your, quote, problems may be just beginning. Because now there's a target on you. And you become a threat to the enemy. And he doesn't want to see you growing in Christ and sharing your faith. And you may experience more temptations in this life. Because now you're aware of sin and things that you used to just kind of go along with and not think too much about. Now you realize the devastation they can cause in your life. And so now you're struggling with sin. And Satan would love to see you fall. And you may experience spiritual backlash. I think of Pastor Jason last week going out to Berkeley, you know, and when, when the pastor goes away or when a team goes from our church on a mission trip, you need to pray for the people at home and for the wives and family and that because of the backlash. So Jason's out there, what happens here? Refrigerator dies, you know, they got a water leak, the van breaks. I mean, just there are times when those things happen. And you look at it and you go, you know, is this a coincidence that it happened just now or is this part of that backlash? Or I think of a young uh, believer in uh, one of the closed countries where we are working, uh, unreached people groups. And this man came to Christ and he was learning how to share his faith. And he's stepping out doing that among friends in this unreached people group. And as he steps out of faith, what happens to him? On the very same day, his motorcycle is stolen at work and his house is broken into at home. Backlash, spiritual backlash. You become a threat to the enemy. Satan doesn't like that. He wants to discourage or defeat you. The normal Christian life is not easy and free of suffering. There are sacrifices to be made. There are spiritual battles to be fought. There are things that will come as a result of being obedient to Christ. There are risks to be taken for the kingdom. So what should our attitude be? Well, Peter tells us that we should rejoice in the midst of our suffering. Rejoice in the midst of the suffering. We're not happy for the pain, but we are happy that God is using us and at work in our life. Verse 13, he said, Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Just as we share in his sufferings, so also we will share in his glory. The theme of rejoicing and suffering is common in the New Testament. I mean, Paul said in Romans chapter 5, he said, We rejoice in our sufferings because of what they produce in our life. They produce perseverance or character and hope. Those are all good things. Uh, James said that we should consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. That's what happens when we persevere through trials. We grow. And Peter, in this letter, in chapter 1, said, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. God's testing. God's refining us. And so here's Paul and James and Peter. They're all saying the same thing that Jesus said, that it is possible to have joy in the midst of suffering and that God will use those trials in your life for good. How can that be? One of the stories that Nick shares in here is about a man in the former Soviet Union. He's living in Russia, and his name is Dmitri. And Victor, his guide, was saying, you got to meet Dmitri, and you got to hear his story. When we finally arrived at this small Russian village and stopped in front of a tiny dwelling, Dmitri opened the door and graciously welcomed into his tiny home. I want you to sit here, he instructed me. This is where I was sitting when the authorities came to arrest me and send me to prison for 17 years. Dimitri told me that he had been born and raised in a Christian family by believing parents. His parents had taken him to church as a child, and over the decades, he explained, communism slowly destroyed most of the churches and places of worship. Many pastors were imprisoned or killed, including their own. It got to the point where if they were going to go to church, it would be a three-day walk to get to the closest church, and they just couldn't do that. So Dimitri's looking at his sons as they are growing up, and he's saying, you know, I want my sons to hear these stories of Jesus. And he was talking to his wife, and he said, what would you think if we took some time in the evening and we, I read the Bible and we taught them the stories of Jesus? Well, his wife was overjoyed. She had been praying that Dimitri would do this. And Dimitri's just, he's untrained. You know, he hasn't gone to school. He's not been educated in theology or anything, but he wants to read the Word of God to his sons. So he begins to teach them. And then the sons in time ask, Dad, could we sing some of those songs that we sing when we go to real church? And so they begin to sing. And they worship. Now, it's a small village, and it's hard to keep things secret, and people hear the music through the windows. And in time, some ask, can we join you? Twenty-five people start meeting at Dimitri's house as Dimitri reads the scripture and shares it. And the authorities also hear about it, and they come, and they confront Dimitri, and they say, you can't do this. You know, you, you started an illegal church, and you can't do this anymore. And Dimitri says, what do you mean a church? I'm not a pastor. We're just family and friends getting together to read the Bible and pray. And they warned him. Church grew 50 people. They confront him again and warn him that he has to stop doing this. Church grows to 75 people. They come one day and they break in and they grab Dimitri and they begin to slap him up and beat him and throw him against the wall. And then they say to him, Dimitri... If you don't stop doing this, this will be the least of what's going to happen to you the next time we come. And in that room, there was an elderly grandmother. 
And she stood up and she risked her own life and she pointed her bony finger in the face of that policeman and she said, you have laid hands on a man of God and you will not survive. And that was on a Tuesday. And on Thursday, that man died of a heart attack. The word in that village spread. The fear of God came upon that village. The next time they meet, there's 150 people in the house, around the house, all wanting to hear the word of God. And the authorities came, and that's when they arrested Dimitri and took him away and put him in prison where he would be for the next 17 years. So Nick asked them, how did you survive in prison? How did you make it through that time? And there were two spiritual disciplines that he had learned from his father that became so important to him. One was worship. The other was his commitment to the word of God. And what Dimitri did every morning when he was in prison in this small, tiny cell, is every morning when he got up, he would stand and it was his custom to face the east and he would raise his hands and he would sing a heart song to Jesus, a song of worship and praise. It'd be like, you know, us, if we got up every morning, we sang, holy, holy, holy. Or maybe it's one of the contemporary choruses, and you stand up and you sing that every day to God as an offering to him. He had, you know, other people in the prison would yell at him. They would mock him. they taunt him. They didn't want him waking them up, or they didn't want him singing, or the guards would be angry and threaten him. But every day, Dimitri would worship God. And the second thing he did was whenever he could find a piece of paper, even a scrap, if he had something to write with, even if it was a piece of charcoal, he would write down all the scripture that he could on that small scrap of paper, all the songs that he could remember, and he would place it on a pillar in his cell as an offering to God. When the guards found that, they would beat him. He said what was the hardest thing in prison for him, though, was not the torture or things that he went through. The hardest thing was the isolation from his family and friends, from other believers. But those two things were carrying him along. Finally, though, you can imagine, 17 years a long time, he hits a wall one day. They have taunted him. The guards have said that your wife has been murdered, your sons have been taken away and are gone, and you've lost everything. You've lost your home. You've lost everything. And he was at the breaking point, and he said to him, okay, I'll sign whatever you want me to sign. They wanted him to sign papers denying his faith, renouncing Jesus. You bring them to me in the morning, and I'll sign them. And that night, he's just wrestling with this. He's just feeling like he has failed, but he can't take it anymore. And in the middle of that night, back at his home, his wife, his sons, his brother are sensing Dimitri's despair. And you know that chair he was sitting in when he was arrested? They knelt around that. And they got on their knees and they prayed for Dimitri that God would give him strength. And God did a miracle. And in that cell, he said, I could hear the voices of my wife and my sons crying out to God for me. And when, when the guards came the next morning, he said, I am not going to sign anything. And they said, why? What happened? And he said, you lied to me. My wife is alive. My sons are alive. And I will not sign what you're asking me to sign. Time goes on again, years pass. 
comes to a point where they have finally determined that they're going to execute Dimitri. They get him one morning, they're marching him down the central hallway down to the courtyard where they would do the execution. And another miracle took place. As Demetrius is being walked down that corridor, the men who are in those cells, 1,500 men in all of those cells, stood and they turned to the east and they sang the song that Demetrius had sung every morning for the time that he was in. And the guards were stunned. I mean, they were stunned by what just happened. And they looked at Dimitri and they said, who are you? And he said, I am a son of the living God and Jesus is his name. And they took him back to his cell. And a few days later, he was released. They let him go. God did a miracle to preserve his life. You know, he, Nick traveled, he was in Ukraine, he was hearing stories there too of how much pastors had suffered under communism, taken away, put in prison, killed. Some who compromised, some who gave in, who began to preach only officially approved messages. But the people could tell the difference. And a habit, a custom developed in Ukraine that's still practiced today, where when the pastor comes up to the pulpit to speak, the people stand in honor for the office because of what so many suffered to bring them the word. And if a pastor had compromised and given in, the people would stand, but when he spoke, they would turn their backs to him until he was done, and then they would sit down because they wanted to hear the word of God and they were looking for leaders who were faithful and true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In China, when he met with believers there who had experienced persecution too, and he had an unusual meeting in the western part of China with those who had been part of several house churches and they came together and they, they connected. And one of the things that they shared, just like this, they said, you know, what you bring into prison with you is what you're going to take out of it. What you bring with you is so essential and important. And if you are not prepared, if you don't know the Word of God, if you don't know those songs of praise and have them memorized or hid in your heart, it's going to be very hard for you to survive. But if you do know and you hold on to those things, God's going to use you. You know, and I thought about that even here in this country. As a pastor, I've had many conversations with people when it comes to that point where death is near, and they know that. And I think of the difference that Jesus makes when we face death here, that those believers who are strong in the word and who understand what awaits us in heaven, you know, are just, I mean, they're sad to say goodbye to their loved ones, but they are looking forward to what God has prepared for us in heaven. And they have shared with me those kind of stories and, and the hope and the strength that they have. I mean, I go to pray with them, but they encourage and they strengthen me. And I go, it is such a difference. And on the other side, to go or be called to homes where people don't know the Lord or where people are struggling with that, and they're terrified about what's going to happen when they die. Jesus makes the difference. And what you invest in in this life and what you build into your life when you hold on to the promises of God, worship and the Word of God makes a huge difference. Peter goes on to say in the third point, the remember 
If you suffer for the sake of Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. And Peter makes it clear that it is not suffering for evil that counts. I mean, you know, if you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or thief or criminal or meddler. I mean, that's not suffering for Jesus. That's not persecution. You broke the law or you deserve to be punished because of what you had done. It is suffering for the sake of Jesus that counts. And one day God's going to settle all accounts and there is justice that will come. And those who have followed Christ will be honored. You see, one of the things that suffering does is it refines us and it refines the church. Can you imagine if a wave of persecution came across the American church, what would happen right now? There would be believers who would stand firm and there would be a whole lot of people who would fall away, drift away, sift away because they are Christians in name only. Suffering, persecution refines the church. And there is a connection, Peter makes clear, between suffering and glory. It's those who suffer with Christ who will share in his glory. Think of an old song we used to sing that if you can't bear the cross, then you can't wear the crown. There's a connection between the two. And just like Jesus suffered and was glorified, so believers in this world who suffer with Christ will be glorified with him. And oh, how great that glory is going to be. Paul says in Romans 8.18, one of my favorite verses, that I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. They are not worth comparing. When you think of how much suffering there is in this world and how awful it can be and the injustice and the cruelty and even these things of persecution, the stories that are told, the glory of heaven far outweighs them all. That's got to be pretty good. So keep your eyes on Jesus and stay true to him. Nick tells another story about a man named Mahmud. Mahmud lived in a very large Islamic country. And there was a faith-based organization there that operated a medical clinic, and it just so happened that Mahmoud had a shop right across from the entrance to the clinic. He was outspoken. He hated Christians. He was a militant opponent of what was going on in this medical ministry. And every Friday when people were going to the mosque down the street, he'd stand in front of his store and he'd stir up the crowd. And he would accuse the evil infidels at the clinic of preying on or poisoning or overcharging good Muslims. He would curse and condemn some of the medical staff by name. He was an angry and hateful man whose anger spilled over as he spewed animosity at anyone affiliated with this medical clinic. Later, Mahmoud contracted an incurable cancer. His superstitious Muslim community considered him contagious and quit frequenting his shop. Now he was not only sick and dying, but he was also unable to feed and provide for his wives and children. And the staff at the hospital learned about his condition 
and they came to his store to buy things from him. They shopped at his store to provide him with some income for his family. They asked about his needs. They prayed for him. And in time, they began to care for him and even bathed him when he needed it. And Mahmoud's heart began to soften and he experienced gratitude for these people that would care for him in that way. And shortly before he passed away at the age of 57, Mahmoud made a decision to become a follower of Jesus. Now his youngest wife is in a country where you could have multiple wives. His youngest wife, Aisha, was 24 years old. She's now a widow with four children. She saw what happened. She saw how these Christians cared for this man who was so violent in his hatred against Christianity. And she became a believer too, shortly before he died. And she went on to become an evangelist. I mean, you couldn't keep her quiet. She wanted to tell others about Jesus too until one day the police came. And they arrested her and they took her to the jail and they put her in an underground cell. Dark, damp, filthy cell. A hole in the ground. And they closed the door over her. And Aisha was terrified. What was going to happen to her and she cried out to God. And as she cried out to God, she began to sing. And as she sang songs of praise to God, it was like God was filling her with strength, allowing her to do that. And as she sang, she also noticed something happened up above that those in the offices of the jail up above got quiet as though they were listening. And then came one night, when the trapdoor was open and light came down into her cell and the chief of police himself reached down to take her up and said, I'm going to let you go. And she goes, she's suspicious. She goes, it's after midnight. You can't let me go. It's illegal for a woman to walk alone on the street. Is this some kind of trick? No, I'm going to escort you myself. She wonders, does he have some kind of evil intent or something? No. I want you to go home, and here's why. The chief of police, one of the most powerful men in the city, looked at 24-year-old Aisha and shook his head in bewilderment. And he said, I don't understand you. You are not afraid of anything. He said, my wife, my daughters, all the women in my family are afraid of everything. But you are not afraid of anything. So now I'm going to take you safely to your home tonight, and three days from now, I'm going to come to get you and bring you to my house. And I want you to come to my house so that you can tell everyone in my family why you are not afraid. And I want you to sing that song. Wow. Worship. Word of God. Powerful, powerful tools that God's given to us that he will use. What should we do? I mean, here we are living in a country where we're not experiencing persecution at all like what brothers and sisters are doing in other parts of the world. If they can be bold, we can be bold. We can be bold in our witness and share the gospel. These believers suffered because they were willing to do that. They were willing to live for Christ and to share his gospel with those who didn't know Jesus. If they had remained quiet, anonymous, kept things to themselves, kind of in secret, they probably could have made it okay but they risked their lives for the sake of the name so that others might be saved.
And then secondly, don't take for granted the freedoms that we have been given in America. The freedom to worship, the freedom to own a Bible, the freedom to study the scriptures, the freedom to pray and to share our faith, the opportunities that we have to work and to give and to contribute to the Lord's work. You know, Nick ended with a story that really was an unexpected twist for me, but a great blessing to read. He told about a woman named Samira. He said, she's one of the strongest, most courageous Christian believers out of Islam that my wife and I have ever known. She's young, single, well-educated. Samira gave her life to Jesus after a series of dreams and visions. Miraculously, she had found a Bible. She had started reading it on her own. She had been discussing her questions and faith issues with a conservative imam. And through that God-guided pilgrimage, Samira gave her heart to Jesus. She got a job with the United Nations. She was working as a woman's advocate and then had the opportunity and time to come to the United States. They invited her to come to their home in Kentucky. And on a Sunday morning like this, they took her to church, just a normal church like ours on a Sunday morning. And they were having a baptism service that day and there was gonna be a family, a mom and dad and two kids being baptized. And as they're sitting there and she's part of this worship service and she's watching this baptism, she's getting kind of fidgety or anxious and Nick is wondering, you know, are you okay? It almost looked like she was having an anxiety attack. And, and she said, no, no, I'm okay, but I can't believe this. I, I just can't believe this. And she talked about what she was experiencing. And she said, I cannot believe that I have lived long enough to see people being baptized in public. An entire family together, and no one is shooting at them. No one is threatening them. No one's going to go to prison today. No one will be tortured. No one will be killed. And she was just so excited. And she never dreamed that God could do such things, that there was a place on the earth where people could worship in that kind of freedom. And, and she considered it a miracle that I would ever live to see a miracle like this. Nick said, I couldn't help but smiling as I turned my eyes back toward the baptismal font of the church. And she looked around at the other people sitting in the congregation that morning and she said to them, you know, why, why aren't they standing? Why aren't they clapping or, or cheering? I mean, she goes, I feel like I want to shout. I'm about to burst with joy. Because from her part of the world, she had never seen anything like this. And I think that's a powerful story to remind us to never take for granted the freedoms that we have and what God did here. That he carved out in a part of the world a place where we would have the freedom to worship, the freedom to pray, the freedom to meet, the freedom to share the gospel, to study the scriptures, and to do that without fear. God be praised. And thank you, Jesus, for the people that really helped to shape our country and the miracle that you did. So what should we do? We should be a people who worship God and who are growing in the word and who are taking advantage of every opportunity to help others come to know him too. Let's pray. 
Father, you know my heart has been moved as I have read these stories this week. Testimonies of courage and faith. And God, I thank you for them. And I pray that you would continue to strengthen those believers who live in countries suffering under persecution. And Father, I pray that you would give us courage and boldness to live for you here, to be a witness for Christ, to live our lives fully devoted to you and to give and to pray and to go and to do what we can to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. We ask it in your name, amen.